Turn with me to John, the sixth chapter. We're, we're picking up in our uh, sermon series, going through the book of John. And it was interesting to me, um, I, uh, I missed staff prayer this morning. When I walked in, Wes looked at me and he said, the word of the Lord is equipping. Is that, is that the way you said it? The word of the day is, is equipping. And I was like, hey, wait a minute. That's part of what I'm preaching today, which, well, which you said, the word of the day is equipping. Why would it be two different things? And Jamie was like, well, that's what I talked about yesterday, which is true. If you were at the retreat, you, Jamie talked about having the tool for the thing that you need to do for the work of the Lord. And she had them on this great scavenger hunt all over the hill. It was awesome, and it was hot, and it was awesome. And uh, we'll dive into some of that here in just a minute. In John chapter 6, and I'm going to read through this, and then we'll dip back into some things. Let's read through this passage. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, which... By the way, that's a day's wage, so 200 days worth of work um, would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up. And filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet, say the prophet, say the prophet, who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. What a problem to have. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this story quite a few times. And I want us to dive into it a little deeper than maybe you heard it if you went to Sunday school. This story, it comes in this place in the book of John, and it says that Passover is coming. Now, we've already read through one Passover earlier in the book of John. And now we're at Passover time again, and every time we come to Passover, 
uh, in the book of John, we're going to be taking communion together because when we, we come to the end of the book, that's where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Now, we're not doing it right here because I think it's more fitting here in a couple weeks uh, when we get to Jesus being the bread of life, and it's still in the same time frame. And so that's, that's coming up here in a couple weeks. Um, but if we look at John chapter 5, we rewind, what just happened? In John chapter 5, remember Jesus, uh, he healed someone on the Sabbath, and it made everybody mad. Why are you doing good things on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And, and then it says this is some time later. Now, when he healed this man on the Sabbath, it was around the time of a festival. But it doesn't say which one. It also could have been Passover. It could have been the Feast of the Booths. And the reason I bring that up is because from chapter 5 to chapter 6, what we see is anywhere from six months to a year has now gone by. When you end chapter 5, it says after this. In fact, the region Jesus is in is very much further north than he was before. So in John, John skips a bunch of time, which is strange. But he makes, he makes room for this, because at the end of his book, he says, I suppose if you recorded all the miracles of Jesus, if you record everything that Jesus ever did, you know what he says? He says, I suppose not even all the books in the entire world can contain everything that Jesus did. Also, you've got to remember, John wrote after the other Gospels. I remember I was about 11 or 12 years old when I realized that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we're all telling the same story. Like, in my mind, and I remember looking up, I was like, I need to read about one of the miracles of Jesus. And I thought it was somewhere in the middle of his life. And so I went to uh, Mark to start there. And it was like, wait a minute. Mark has the entire story of Jesus. And then I went to Matthew, and I was like, wait, it's got the, it's got the death of Jesus here. I thought Matthew was the birth of Jesus. And John was the death of Jesus, and everything's in the middle. I had it all wrong. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we know, they all tell the life of Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call those the synoptic gospels because they're more of the same. And John's out here, and John was written much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so, for some reason, John writes his story different. John doesn't have as many miracles, and John doesn't have any parables. It's very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But one thing that's the same in John is this story right here. In fact, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Now, I have to put an asterisk on that, and this is what theologians do. They said, you know, this is the only miracle besides the resurrection in all four Gospels. And I just have to laugh in that, like, besides the resurrection. Like, let's make an exception for that one. In fact, they'll say there's only, uh, theologians will say, there's only seven miracles recorded in the book of John, and this is number four, if you don't count the resurrection. Well, come on, why aren't we counting the resurrection? Isn't that a pretty big deal? In fact, isn't that the entire point? So here we are in, in John, and it says that he's at the Sea of Galilee. I want to say how real this story is, because John, he says it's by the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, because when this happened, that wasn't called the Sea of Tiberias, but the time, by the time John sits down to write it, it had been renamed the Sea of Tiberias. So he's saying, hey, this has a new name you might know it as now. 
It says Jesus goes up to the mountain. And when we look at the other Gospels, and, and flip with me, if you will, back to Matthew. Because this is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you look at Matthew chapter 14, we're going to see a few things and see the, the frame of mind Jesus was in when this whole story happens. What at least two of the Gospels record is that right before this, John the Baptist was killed. That was Jesus' cousin. And I don't think that had no impact on Jesus. In fact, you guys realize that we have a God who sympathizes with us in every way. Like John was his cousin, but John came to proclaim Jesus. I'm talking about John the Baptist, not John, the one writing the book of John. So John, he's, he dies. He gets killed. He gets beheaded. And that had to have an impact on Jesus. It, it's strange to me that even though Jesus knows what he's going to do and he knows the way everything's going to work out, that Jesus still has very real emotions about things. In fact, you guys remember when Jesus came up to Lazarus' tomb and Lazarus was dead? And Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead, right? But he looks at the people weeping and crying around him, and it says that Jesus himself does what Jesus wept. Like Jesus has this heart for people, where, and he lives where they're at. And then when we look here at Matthew chapter 14, it tells us that John was, was killed, and he had just sent the disciples out we learned in other Gospels that he had sent them out to do ministry and they came back and they were pretty, pretty excited. You ever gone out on a ministry trip, gone out to tell people about Jesus or you get done with a youth retreat and you're pretty excited? No, you guys are just tired. Are you excited about the youth retreat? Yeah, but you're also what? You're tired. You're really tired. Um, it tells us in Matthew chapter 14, it says, when Jesus heard about John the Baptist in verse 13, it says, he withdrew to a desolate place by himself. And it says that the, the crowds, they followed him. And it says what? He had compassion on them and he healed the sick. He had compassion on them and he healed the sick. If you flip over to Mark chapter 6. In verse 30, I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. They were excited about the ministry. They were excited about the retreat. And he said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. How many know after a weekend of ministry, you need rest? So they were attempting to get away by themselves because John the Baptist had just died. And that was heavy. And they had just done all this ministry. And ministry wears you out. They were trying to get alone, and it says as they were crossing over to the other side of, of the, uh, the sea, the crowds just followed them. If you look in verse 34, it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And so what we see is they come to him, and he begins to teach them, and he begins to heal them because he has Compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And, and lastly, in Luke, it says that he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. 
So kind of combining both of these things. And so you kind of can see the situation playing out. They're tired, they're worn out, their hearts are heavy, and in this kind of weak place, people show up. Have you ever had a friend like that? You just have had a, a terrible day at home. Things aren't going right. And you're about to lay down for bed. And right when you're about to doze off, that friend calls and they just need you. And what do you say? I'm really too tired for this right now. I, I, I really just can't. And yet, what do you do when you have the Spirit of God inside of you? What do you do anyway? You, you minister to them. You talk to them. You talk them through it. Whereas if someone had told you five minutes before, hey, someone's about to call, and you're about to do some really intense one-on-one -on -one ministry, you would have been like, there's just no way. I just don't have it in me right now. It's just not there. I'm tired. My heart is heavy. I can't. And yet, when you pick up that phone, I had a similar thing happen to me about 11.30 last night when my daughter texted me for more screen time. I was like, what in the world? Not appropriate. So I had to dig deep. Sometimes you'll find yourself doing ministry when you're attempting to just rest. Isn't that what we saw with the woman at the well? Jesus was just trying to sit by the well and rest while the disciples went in to get chicken. And this woman shows up. And what does Jesus do? I'm resting right now. I just can't. Is that what he does? No, he gives himself even in the middle of his weakness, even in the middle of his rest. And sometimes that's where we find ourselves. Can I tell you, the, the, the more you try to, I'll say this, it's important to withdraw to rest. I think we see Jesus doing it a lot. That's important. But you also need to understand that even as you're withdrawing to rest, the Lord will still try to use you. How awesome is that? That he'll use you because then it's all about him. Right? When you feel weak, it's all about him. He's like, I can't do this. I'm too weak for this. And he's like, it's okay. I got you. I got you. So Jesus asks a question. He says, uh, he sees all these people coming. Now, where are these people going? They're going to Jerusalem. They were headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's a pilgrimage, right? Thousands and thousands of people heading to Jerusalem for the, for the Passover. But also the disciples had just gone out doing ministry, and they're headed back to Jesus. In my mind, it doesn't say this. I think some of these people followed the disciples back to Jesus. Like, wait a minute, this guy's healing people. And so Jesus finds himself with a great crowd, and he asks a question to Philip, where are we going to buy bread for these so they can eat? And he said this to test them, and, and Philip's like, we don't, we don't have enough. We don't have enough. There's, there's not enough. Just like, just like that, that midnight phone call you get, you don't have enough strength. They don't have enough bread. There's not enough there. Well, what do they have? Well, here's a boy, and he has some loaves and fishes. But it's definitely not enough. Like, it's for sure not enough. Do you realize sometimes God will ask you questions that just seem ridiculous? Like, 
That's a thing. God will ask you a question, and you'll be like, that's just dumb. Why, why is God asking dumb questions? And, and that's it, right? God's not asking dumb questions. He's asking rhetorical questions. Sometimes you guys rebuke the Lord. You'll hear something in your spirit. Well, that's, that's dumb. You, I rebuke that thought right now. And the Lord's like, wait a minute, that was me. Why does he ask this question in this way? Because he's trying to pull on faith. He's trying to pull on their, their faith. He's trying to test them to see where their faith is at. And the disciples don't get it. They don't get it. You know how I know how much they don't get it? It's because later on, I think this is in Matthew and Mark, later on they find themselves in another place and they don't have any bread. And Jesus, they're like, oh, he's mad at us because we forgot bread. He's a miracle worker. Why would he be angry with you that you forgot bread? You've missed the whole point. They just don't get it. And we like to... We like to, you know, make fun of the disciples, but let's just be honest. We're the disciples. We don't get it sometimes. God can do mighty miracles for us. He can move in our situation. He can bind up our broken heart. But the next time a situation happens, we're like, oh, I'm just falling apart again. I know, God, you got me through the last thing, but there's no way you can get me through the next thing. So he's testing them. And Andrew, I don't know how he said it. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what is that for so many? At least it was something, right? At least he was somewhere. He, you can see, here's something, but I have no faith. Maybe a mustard seed there. I'm not sure if you can call it that or not. Here's something. And this is where I was thinking about equipping. Because you realize the Lord, he, he will equip you for what you need to do. He will equip you for what you need to walk through. And here's, here's what was on my heart this week as I was praying through this. So many times... We make excuses for not doing ministry because we say, I don't have what I need. 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 God, I can't do that. I don't have what I need. Now, first of all, the scripture does say, ask. Right? Ask. If you need anything, ask. And he'll provide for the need. And here's Jesus asking. Like, what do you have? And you don't, well, I'll, I have this, but this is not it. it it's, it's not, Lord, this is what I need. It's, Lord, this is what I have. That's, that's where our heart should resonate all the time. It's like, instead of saying, Lord, I don't have what I need, rather we should say, Lord, this is what I have. Think about Moses. Moses, he's walking along through the desert. He sees a burning bush. It's not being consumed. He walks up to it, and God starts talking to him through this burning bush, which is outrageous. And guys, if I could just like peel back your Sunday school calloused hearts for a moment, 
that is weird. It is weird if I walked outside and there was a tree on the other side of the road on fire and it just kept being on fire. That'd be insane. And yet that really actually happened. And he walks up and God starts talking to him and says, hey, I'm going to send you back into Egypt where you ran away from because you're a wanted man, right? And, and I'm going to send you back there, back to those people because my people need to be free. The children of Israel are slaves in Egypt. And Moses, Moses is just like, I can't do this. I can't do this. How am I going to do this? And the Lord says, what do you have in your hand? He has a stick. Like, what do you have? Not, what do you need? What do you have? What do you have? I'm reminded of Joseph. You guys remember Joseph? He gets sold into slavery. Ends up in Potiphar's house. And he doesn't stay just some sort of little servant boy in Potiphar's house. He becomes the leader of Potiphar's estate. Why? Because he used what the Lord had given him. He used what he had. He could have easily made an excuse. I've been sold into slavery by my brothers. And I know there's teenagers in here that some of you wish you could sell your brothers into slavery sometime. And you make excuses because you got picked on or you got hurt in church or man, they'll just never, no one will ever respect me. What do you have? Not, what, what do you not have? Not, if I, if I only had. No, what do you have? Look around. What has the Lord equipped you with that you haven't recognized, that you haven't been grateful for? What do you have? And, and, and it's, it's a thing that I continually have to remind us here is like we have this wonderful, this wonderful facility. Now, is it everything we want it to be? Not yet. Can I tell you it will never be everything all of us want it to be? Even if we had unlimited funds and did all the things we wanted to do to this place, there would still be like, well, well, what if, can I tell you, the, the Lord didn't call us to reach people because we had a nice air-conditioned room or because we, we, finally, we finally got the best sound system ever or we, we finally got a, a huge parking lot. I remember when we paved the parking lot. Wasn't that awesome? Man, like, yes, we got to pay parking lot. We don't have to walk through the mud to get in the door. Yeah, Jesus didn't need that to reach the lost. He doesn't need it at all. There's, there's, can I tell you, there's ministries around the world. I think of our brothers and sisters hiding out in China this very day, worshiping the Lord, hiding in a house somewhere. They don't have any of this stuff. Our brothers and sisters in Africa, meeting, meeting in a, a brush harbor, just, just a, a temporary structure they've thrown up to get out of the sun, just to worship Jesus. There's all the things we think we have to have. And the, the Lord's just like, no, what do you have? You know what? I look around. I see this wonderful facility we have. And we're going to continue to do things to it. But let's use it like it is while we have it and continue to be good stewards of it. But what do you have in your life? What do you keep waiting for? Like, you know, I'd, I'd really like to lead worship one day, and, well, you don't know how to play the guitar, but you have one. Have you even picked it up to learn? What do you have? What do you have? The Lord, 
He's given you what you need to be effective in ministry. Because it's him that wants to empower. If you could do it in your own power, that's not impressive at all. They're like, do you realize that's the way some liberal theologians read this? They actually say that this, this wasn't a miracle at all. What they say is, is that they found this little boy who's willing to give up his lunch, and it so inspired the rest of the group that everyone else in the group who also had food just began to share with one another. And it was a miracle of sharing. 5,000 people sharing food with one another. But, but that's not what this story says. What this story says, if you read all four accounts, is that they were out in this desolate place where there was no food and no one had intended to go out there. No one had intended to follow Jesus that far out in the middle of nowhere and they probably didn't realize that many other people were also going to be coming. And so all of a sudden you have this situation where there's thousands of people and one lunch. Just one. It also is pretty incredible because this miracle was so big. The other gospels say this doesn't include women and children. And when you include women and children, they say there was anywhere from 20 to 25,000 people gathered on this hillside that got fed. 25,000 people. And that's one of the reasons all four Gospels include this miracle. It was one of the most public, well-known miracles that Jesus ever did. To, to that degree, this also is one of the reasons we can trust that the, the Word of God is true. There were, think about this, there were 25,000 witnesses to this miracle. So all four gospel writers were compelled to write it down. And do you, can you imagine, like, as they were spreading that out, as that gospel was being spread out amongst the region, there were people that would pick it up and, and, and read it or have it read to them that were there that day. And they would easily be able to say, wait a minute, I was there. That's not the way that happened. We all just shared lunch with each other. And then they were like, oh, well, maybe this isn't true after all. No, there were 25,000 witnesses to the miracle of God that day that can attest that the gospel is true. So what do you have? And so Jesus tells them to sit down in a grassy place. And they, he took the loaves. He gave thanks. He broke them and he gave them. In, in John, it just says he distributed them. And I looked this word up, and distribute means to divide and give. The other gospels actually literally say he took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. Can I tell you this morning, this is a sermon maybe for another time, but can I mention it to you this morning that sometimes the things that we think we have, that we need, that we want to hang on to, think about this little boy. He had this lunch, and what did Jesus do? He took it. But then what Jesus takes, he blesses, which is a lot of fun. It's really fun when God blesses what you have, but you have to let go of it before he can bless it. You have to stop saying, no, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, like a, like a four-year-old with a toy. It's mine. You have to give it to him so he can bless it. 
So he can bless the talent he's given you. He can bless the money he's given you. He can bless your family. You have to give it to him first. After he blessed it, it says he broke it. And I know I'm taking some liberties with this passage today, but sometimes we must be broken before God can use us. We must be humbled where he can take us to a place where we're useful to him. I talked to you last week about the men on the road to Emmaus, or maybe it was a couple weeks ago. They were walking with Jesus and didn't even know it, and he was teaching them about himself. And they didn't even know it was him. You know when they recognized him? When they got to the place where they're going to eat, he says he took the bread, he took it, says he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it. And when he did that, it says that's when they realized it was him. Like there was something about the way Jesus did this. It must have been a common thing for him to take it, bless it, break it, and give it. And before you're useful to be given away to anybody for ministry, the Lord sometimes will let you be broken. I can say for me personally, this has happened in my own life. The Lord took me, he blessed me, and then I was broken. And on the other side of being broken, there's a different kind of ministry that comes out of that. And I look around this room today, and I can see people that you've gone through seasons of your life that you have felt broken. And can I tell you, that's when the Lord can most effectively give you away. He's not done with you. You were never left just to be broken. You were, you were made to be an abundance. You were made to be life-giving through Jesus. That living water that's poured into you now pours out of you, that you can give it away because you were broken and you can be given. What I love is this abundance is in all four stories too. It says they, in this verse it says, they ate as much as they wanted. They'd eaten their fill all the other three Gospels, it says they ate and were satisfied. How great it is to be satisfied by the things of God. To be satisfied by Him and Him alone. That when you use what He's given you, you can be satisfied. When we cling on to the things of the world, we are never satisfied. That's why it's, it's frustrating as a church when we think, well, we need this and we need this. And if we just got that, then people would come. You will never be satisfied by trying to grab onto the things of the world and pull them into the kingdom of God. Rather, we use what God has given us, and as we do the things he's called us to do, we become satisfied by him. The only satisfaction we can ever have is through Jesus Christ, through what he gives us. He is the living water. He is the living bread. Uh, worship team, can you come on up? I'll be done early but don't play anything yet just come and encourage the people hey Jamie can you come here It says, 
that after they were filled, they decided that he needed to be king. Like, this is the greatest welfare program ever. Jesus will heal us of all of our sicknesses, and he will feed us all the time. We never have to be sick or hungry again. And if Jesus, if his goal is to make himself king, then man, he's mission accomplished. Like, how great would that be? It says that this is indeed the prophet that's coming to the world. And we, we said a couple weeks ago that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus, right? And what they're referring to is Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. In Deuteronomy, it's Moses talking. He says, someday a prophet will come that's just like me. He's like me. And he will give you words, commands that you must follow. Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses from Deuteronomy. And when they call him, if you look in verse 14, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world, they're talking about that prophecy, the prophet like Moses. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. And we'll find out here in a couple weeks, what did Moses do? Well, Moses, he gave us manna in the desert. Like they were out in the desert, they didn't have food. They were starving. They were starting to whine, like, Moses, you brought us out here to die. Right? And they woke up one morning, and there was just manna all over the ground. This bread-like stuff. What is it? We don't know. We can eat it, though. Moses, he gave us manna. Well, Jesus, he just fed us bread. He's the prophet like Moses. He meets our needs. He heals our sicknesses. Let's make him king. And Jesus does something really weird. He hides. Why? Why does Jesus hide? And what we'll find out here in a couple weeks is as Jesus begins to talk to this crowd, they find him again. He tries to hide, and they actually come and find him again. And after he talks to him the second time, most of them just say, never mind. We don't want you, Jesus. Because here's the thing, and this is the thing about us in this room today, too. They were really, really excited about Jesus being their Savior. They're really excited about Jesus freeing them from the oppressive Roman government. Like, he could be a king. He could take out the Romans. He could meet all our needs. They're very excited about Jesus being king. But then when he starts to talk to them the next day about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they're like, what? This is weird. When they start talking about Dying to yourself and serving him as Lord. They didn't want any a part of that. They really loved the idea of Jesus being Savior. They weren't so keen on him being Lord. And that's where we find our world today. 
even some of us here in this room, we love the idea of being Jesus being Savior. Jesus, thank you that you've saved me. Jesus, I love your mercy and your grace. I love that you make me feel better on the inside whenever I'm feeling down. Jesus, thank you for being Savior. But we don't want to submit to him as Lord. When Jesus asks us to do the hard things, when he asks us to be humble, when he asks us to be full of grace like we talked about last week, well, that's hard. When he, when he asks us to keep our anger under control, when he, when he asks us to give up some of those substances that we've been abusing, when he, when he asks us to stop looking at some of those things on our phone that we know we shouldn't be looking at, uh, there's grace. Jesus will forgive me. That's, that's not the word of God at all. That's, oh, there's grace. When you, when you say, well, there's grace, well, there's grace, that's you saying, Jesus is Savior, but he's not Lord. And that's what this crowd is saying. Let's make him king because he is Savior. And Jesus looked at him and said, yeah, you won't be Savior, but the crowd, the multitude, you don't, you don't want me to be Lord. We have to ask ourselves in this room, are we guilty of the same thing? Do we come in here and sing with gusto, yes, Jesus, thank you for being Savior, but are we truly surrendered to him? Are we truly surrendered to him? Teenagers, are, have you truly, I know you like Jesus, but do you follow him? And that's continually the conversation I have with, with people like, well, they, they say they're a Christian and they believe in Jesus. And I would say even demons believe in Jesus. I'm not saying your friend's a, G, a demon. I don't know who they are. Right. Well, they're, they're a nice person. They believe in Jesus, but they don't follow him. Friends, if Jesus is not Savior and Lord... Do you guys know John 3.16? We read it a few weeks ago as we were studying this. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you realize what this crowd is clamoring for, what they're wanting Jesus for, is for the temporary. They just want Jesus for the temporary. Jesus, help me now. Help me with food now. Help me with sickness now. And I would say for us today, we can be guilty of that. Jesus, help me with, with my finances for now. Jesus, help me with my broken heart for now. Which Jesus will do because he's good. But Jesus didn't just come to give you temporary life. Jesus came to give us eternal life. And here's the great news. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts now. Like the moment you say yes to Jesus, 
that eternal life starts. You're that new creation where all things have passed away and all things have become new. Jesus is now Savior and Lord of your life. Will you stand with me? Bow your heads for a moment. I want to ask you this morning. I want to ask you this morning is... Jesus, I would say, looking across this room, from what I know from each person standing in here, Jesus seems to be Savior for every single person in this room. All of us like Jesus. In fact, that's why we're here. Jesus is Savior. But here's my question. Is He Lord? Do you struggle with gossip? And I'm not here to just beat on all the sins that could be in the room, you know. It's easy to get up here and rattle off a list of sins that we all struggle with. That's easy. Can I tell you, your, your sin, all it is is a symptom. It's just the fruit of your heart not being surrendered to Him. I'm going to tell you this morning, As a church and as a Lord, your sin doesn't scare Jesus. He has compassion for your weakness. He hurts when you hurt. He came to free you from that sin so you wouldn't have to walk in it anymore to deliver you. There's not a person in this room who's never struggled with sin. We all have. We're all just like you. We've all struggled with sin, but there are some that have said yes to Jesus, and by saying yes to Jesus, surrender to Him, not just as Savior, but as Lord of our life. This morning, if you need to make Jesus Lord of your life, I'm going to tell you, you just have to say yes to Him right where you stand. You don't need me to pray you to Jesus. You just say yes to Him right where you stand. Scripture says, if you believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead. You have to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And tell people, hey, today I made Jesus Lord of my life. And we'll walk with you through that. What I do want to give an altar call today for, for our house of prayer, is for this word of the day, equipping. Equipping. And I... Actually, I'm going to ask, Wes, can you, can you come up and do you have any other elders or leaders to come help us pray this morning? Vanessa Grace, can you come help us pray as well? Some of you, the Lord has called you to things and you're scared to step out. Lord, I don't, but I don't have. And he's trying to say, yeah, but what do you have? What do you have? 
He wants to use you in such a powerful way. This morning, if, if you need to step out, and I, you, you could not step out, but I think it's such a, a powerful statement of faith saying, you know what? I need to move. I, my feet need to move because guess what? Using what the Lord has given you, it's an action. You'll have to do something. Guess what? Walking in the front of this church is also something you'll have to, to do. So I'm going to invite you to come. Let these men and women of God pray with you to fill you with the Holy Spirit and boldness and power to be equipped to do the thing you've been called to do.